Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 5th, 2015, and we are here to present The Protocols of Satan, Part 4. We will um, be on a road in Bristol, Virginia, and Pennsylvania, I should say Bristol, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania next week. We will do an an open discussion sort of program, possibly on Friday and Saturday, at least for parts of the program. I have some things I want to discuss, some odds and ends I want to discuss on Friday, and hope to take some calls. We um, we hope to be with Star Opperman of of um, historicalrecordings.net and the Christogenian Forum, Mike Delaney of ProSync.org, and several other people, Matthew Watt and and a few others. So on Saturday we will just have a more or less of a roundtable discussion, and and there are also several topics on the table for that as well. I will resume with the series on the protocols in a few weeks, probably not long after I get back, maybe immediately. And um, I believe I will cover the prophet Haggai next, next the, the Friday after next. A few years ago, I had participated in a series of programs with Sword Brethren that consisted of discussions based on Nestor Webster's book, World Revolution. They could probably be greatly improved upon as, at the time, they were rather informal. I didn't spend a whole lot of time preparing for them. It was basically just a a reading of Webster's book and the various chapters concerning the various revolutions in 19th century Europe. And um, it was rather informal and discussion based upon what she had said. We stopped with syndicalism, her explanation of syndicalism in chapter 9 of the book, I believe. Chapter 10 primarily concerns the revolution of 1917. And instead of presenting that, we went on to present the British White Paper on the Bolshevik Revolution known as Russia Number 1. That took over two months, and we never got back to Nesta Webster. Perhaps that was providential, because here we are now. Here we are not going to present the entire chapter, which is quite lengthy, And as our particular area of interest at the moment is confined to the protocols of the so-called learned elders of Zion. Therefore, it is our intention to present what Nestor Webster has to offer in that regard. But first, we must also say a few things about the author herself. Nesta Webster, being very well-read in the areas relevant to our study, had meticulously researched in several languages all of the primary sources that she could locate for her subject, and she offers copious citations as a rule. 
often, and especially in this field of study, primary sources are impossible to obtain. So she resorted to what she believed were the most reliable and authentic secondary sources. However, she was, as a person, very altruistic. She was very reserved in her conclusions, and she seems not to have recognized the Jew as a truly alien character who is forever opposed to Christian society as a matter of his nature. However, for us, even though we see that we identity Christians may see her attitude as... um, too generous, too um, giving, and rather naive in a lot of ways. For us, that is a benefit, because Nesta Webster cannot, by any means, be accused of having motives which were merely based on hatred of any so-called race or religion. Furthermore, Nesta Webster was the consummate Anglophile and makes Germany out to be the aggressor and the enemy of England in the First World War, not distinguishing between the Germans and their perception of the war as a defensive war and the Jews within Germany and their use of that war for the purposes of their own advantage. Of course, Germans were happy to have the Jews within Germany on their side during the war, but that changed after the Balfour Declaration was signed, and Webster either ignores or perhaps was ignorant of the treachery of the Jews in Germany after that point, treachery which Adolf Hitler much later recounts in Mein Kampf. Of course, during the course of the First World War, Germany was also happy, even if it was naive, to have the Jews upset the government of the Tsar in the October Revolution, because Germany was fighting a war on two fronts, and that revolution would solve the problem on one of those fronts. Germany can't be blamed for wanting a way out of the war on the Eastern Front as it fought France and England and then America in the West. So while Germany helped to create a beast and could not see the danger which would eventually result from it, the beast was created in a time of dire necessity for Germany. The creation of that same beast was also assisted by the New York bankers, a connection which Webster seems to have missed entirely. That road would have led her back to the Rothschilds, and it would have upset her entire paradigm concerning the English role in the war and in history. Nesta Webster also seems to have been oblivious to the fact that Jewish families were at the head of all of the banking houses of the city of London, and that these Jews had a principal hand in the guidance of English policy since the time of William of Orange, and that Jews had already intermarried with much of the English nobility, 
So she seems to also be oblivious to the actions of the Jewish bankers and the crypto-Jewish nobles of England, who were just as responsible for the success of the Bolsheviks as the Germans were, although they had used American bankers as their conduit in assisting the cause of Lenin and Trotsky. At this point, I do not know that she has written on this topic anywhere else. She did write a book entitled Surrender of an Empire, where she bears the attitude that the British Empire was being surrendered by traitors from within. But she did not understand that it was never really British in the first place. It was built on English blood and Jewish money. The British Empire belonged to the merchants and bankers of the city and not to the British people. Like many Americans today, Webster, while she was very insightful in certain areas, seems to have been blinded by her own patriotism and prejudices. Because she does not seem to regard Jews as a distinct racial entity, with certainty having missed their role in earlier English history almost entirely. Nesta Webster also wrongly attributes to Germans the German socialism known to us as Marxism, which without doubt was a product of the Jews in Germany, although they had their Christian followers. This is precisely what the protocols say would be the case. And, as we shall see, Webster herself quotes where the protocols say that we intend to appear as though we were the liberators of the laboring man. We shall suggest to him to join the ranks of our armies of socialists, anarchists, and communists, the latter we always patronize, pretending to help them out of fraternal principle and the general interest of humanity evoked by our socialistic masonry. And most people who enter secret societies are adventurers who want somehow to make their way in life and who are not seriously minded. With such people, it will be easy for us to pursue our object and we will make them set our machinery in motion. That's an objective spelled out in the protocols. And even Webster seems to miss the actual effect that had on the history of the French Revolution, the Revolution of 1848, the Revolution of 1917, the Russian Revolution, the, the Bolshevik Revolution. Jews were at the top. Jews were the agitators. And many... Christian Russians signed up on their side. Germany's history up until the time when the National Socialist German Workers' Party had risen to counter the Jews was the result of those very objectives spelled out in the protocols. Those particular objectives had already been fulfilled in Germany by the time of the 1848 revolution. But Webster seems not yet to have quite put it all together. Real German socialism 
is represented by Adolf Hitler's National Socialism, and it is absolutely contrary to the Jewish Socialism, which is better labeled as Marxism. Nestor Webster lived until 1960, but wrote very little of consequence after the 1930s. While she never repented from what we would consider a wrong-sided position on the nature and causes of the First World War, she did become a fascist and was friendly to Adolf Hitler, of whom she said, and I quote, once in control of his country, he abandoned his aggressive attitude towards the Allies, which I would interject was really only on account of Versailles. But at the same time, he put down Bolshevism and took control of Germany, took the control of Germany out of the hands of the Jews. So she understood that the Weimar Republic was certainly a Jewish owned and operated German Republic. That was in a booklet she wrote in 1938 entitled Germany and England. It's available at archive.org. Only then, so far as we have seen, did she admit Jewish control of England. And she expressed shame that England would come to war with Germany on the same side as the Bolsheviks, whom she had always known were Jews, and she will express that here. We can only assume that it was her patriotism which blinded her to the fact that there was a Jewish problem in England much, much earlier, from the time of Cromwell. And she never revised her past positions when she finally discovered the extent to which the problem existed in her own time. However, what Nesta Webster does give us is very good, and in relation to the protocols and the workings of the secret societies on the continent, it permits us to discern for ourselves and to document the truth of the matters at hand. In the earlier segments of this presentation, we have already seen that the book by the French lawyer and bureaucrat Maurice Jolie, The Dialogue in Hell Between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, was, the f was first set forward as the source for the protocols by the English newspaper columnist Philip Graves in a three-part series which he had written for the London Times in August of 1921. Nesta Webster has admitted that there are many similarities and some exactly similar wording, entire paragraphs, between the protocols and the dialogue of Jolie. And that is not a topic of our dispute, since it is indeed perfectly true. But many books and articles, especially on the Internet, to this day, take it for granted that Philip Graves was correct in his conclusion that the protocols were therefore a plagiarism of Jolie, and that for that reason, the cause of the origin of the protocols is closed. However, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, as we have already 
heard Nesta Webster explain in her book, Secret Societies and Subversive Movements, as we closed the last segment of this presentation, here we may see that Jolie's work in the dialogues cannot be entirely original itself, and that his book could not have been the source of the protocols, as it is so often and so shallowly asserted, but that he himself must have obtained many of the thoughts and objectives which he attributed to the character of Machiavelli in the dialogues from a source or sources similar to the actual source of the protocols. Since I'm sorry, Nesta Webster had already explained that while there are striking similarities and even several precise statements which Jolie's book has in common with the protocols, that many things which the two works do not have in common with one another, they do have in common with the writings of some of the subversive groups of 18th and 19th century European politics, as well as many of the writings of the Jewish Bolsheviks of the early 20th century. This was Webster's conclusion in Secret Societies and Subversive Movements, which was published in 1924. And when we presented it, she cited as her source another one of her books, which is World Revolution. And this earlier book was published in the United States by Maynard Small and Company, the same publisher of the first English edition of Sergei Nihilus' book on the protocols, which came out that same year, 1921. Webster addresses Nihilus, and therefore she must have known of his work from earlier non-English sources. However, familiar she already was with Nihilus, World Revolution was first published in London earlier that same year by Constable and Company. Maiden and Small were only the republishers in America. So it must have been written before Webster could ever have seen the Philip Graves articles published in August of 1921. And later on in this chapter, we'll see Nestor Webster herself explain that her book was about to go to press in April or May of 1921. So she could not have seen the Philip Graves articles before they were published, before this book was published. Now, it's the Philip Graves articles which had allegedly first announced the discovery of the parallels between the protocols and the dialogues of Jolie. And later, three years later, when Webster wrote Secret Societies and Subversive Movements, she acknowledged not having known of the similarities between Jolie's dialogues and the protocols before the Graves articles were published and subsequent works that were based on those articles. So where in this chapter of World Revolution, Webster was illustrating the similarities between the protocols and some of the writings of the 19th 
century secret societies and other revolutionaries. She certainly did not have a defense of the protocols as her concern, because the protocols, as far as she knew, were not yet under attack by the Jews. That started right around the same time that this book was published with Catherine Rodziwill in the United States. If she had known about graves or the similarities with Jolie's dialogues, it would have served her interests to include that material here, where it is instead certain that she was still ignorant of it, or she would have wanted to include it here. Rather, she was presenting these similarities between these writings of these secret societies and the protocols from a neutral point of view in an attempt to illustrate that so many seemingly disparate subversive groups actually had the same objectives which by itself should prove that some grander conspiracy lurked in the background, as we shall see here, before 1921. Nesta Webster had already discovered similarities between the protocols and earlier writings of the Bolsheviks, certain of the secret societies and other European revolutionaries, and therefore she was able to correctly assert that the similarities in Jolie's work only further substantiated her own opinions. Once we are aware of Maurice Jolie's own background and the work of Nesta Webster, which we shall present here from Chapter 10 of World Revolution, we must conclude that the protocols are not discredited by the discovery of Jolie's dialogues. Rather, the assertions concerning their origin in the Illuminati and Judeo-Masonic conspiracy are only further substantiated by the discovery of the similarities with Jolie's dialogues. The similarities with Jolie's dialogues, in other words, help our contention that the protocols are legitimate rather than defusing it. The Jews could spin anything they want in the media. It's never true. In her writings, Webster often quotes from what we may consider to be primary sources, such as books of the correspondence of Mikhail Bakunin, or the actual writings of some of the Bolshevik leaders. To give some background on a couple of Nesta Webster's secondary sources for her comparison of the points of the protocols to those, many, those of the many 19th century secret societies, we will begin by quoting from page 22 of World Revolution, where Nesta Webster first begins quoting from 
the Scotsman John Robeson's Proofs of a Conspiracy, which I believe was published first in 1798. And she says in part, in April of the following year, 1785, four other Illuminati who, like Nige, or Baron von Nige, had left the society, disgusted by the tyranny of Weishaupt, were summoned before a court of inquiry to give an account of the doctrines and methods of the sect. The evidence of these men, Utschneider, Kosandi, Grunberger, and Renner, all professors of the Marianan Academy, left no further room for doubt as to the diabolical nature of Illuminism. All religion, they declared, all love of country and loyalty to sovereigns were to be annihilated, a favorite maxim of the order being, and I'll only repeat the English translation, all kings and priests are rogues and traitors. Moreover, Every effort was to be made to create discord, not only between princes and their subjects, but between ministers and their secretaries, and even between parents and children, while suicide was to be encouraged by inculcating in men's minds that the idea, the idea that the act of killing oneself afforded a certain voluptuous pleasure. Espionage was to be extended even to the post by placing adepts in the post offices who possessed the art of opening letters and closing them again without fear of detection. Robeson, who studied all of the evidence of the four professors, thus sums up the plan of Weishaupt as revealed by them. I'm sorry, technical issue. Nesta Webster quoting John Robeson, the order of the Illuminati adjured Christianity and advocated sensual pleasures. In the lodges, death was declared an eternal sleep. Patriotism and loyalty were called narrow-minded prejudices and incompatible with universal benevolence. They were internationalists. Further, they accounted all princes, usurpers, and tyrants, and all privileged orders as their abettors. They meant to abolish the laws which protected property accumulated by long-continued and successful industry, and to prevent for the future any such accumulation. They intended to establish universal liberty and equality, the imprescriptible rights of man, and as necessary preparations for all this, they intended to root out all religion and ordinary morality, and even to break the bonds of domestic life by destroying the veneration for marriage vows, and by taking the education of children out of 
the hands of the parents. Sounds like America. Reduced to a simple formula, the aims of the Illuminati may be summarized in the following six points. Abolition of monarchy and all ordered government. Abolition of private property. Abolition of inheritance. Abolition of patriotism. Abolition of family. For example, of marriage and all morality. And the institution of the communal education of children. Abolition of all religion, sounds like Kenya. In this book, Nesta Webster quotes very frequently from the Abbey Barul and the Scotsman John Robeson. There are explanations of their backgrounds, as well as the text of John Robeson's Proofs of a Conspiracy and of Part 3 of Abbey Barral's Memoirs Illustrating the History of Jacobinism, subtitled Clude of the Illuminati, that are available at the website sacredtexts.com. We will link to those. We will not copy them. We, do not cert we, we certainly do not agree with all of their conclusions at that website, but they do provide the texts that Nesta Webster is quoting from. We also found a PDF copy of John Robeson's Proofs of a Conspiracy at archive.org, which is actually a facsimile of a copy of a book that was taken from the library of John Adams, the ex-president, former American president. And it is signed by his great-grandson, William Henry Adams, who was a historian in his own right. And we don't hear much of him because it is rumored that he was anti-Semitic. He must have read Robeson's book, right? We will post that PDF along with a PDF of an English translation of Abbe Barul's memoirs with this program. In Chapter 10 of World Revolution, Webster is concerned primarily with the forces behind the Bolshevik Revolution and treats the protocols as a result of that concern. She is not meaning to directly address the protocols themselves, but she ends up having to do so, noticing the parallels with the writings of prominent Bolsheviks. So in her endeavor, she tries to identify the first sources of the philosophy of Bolshevism and comparing the writings of prominent Bolsheviks with those of Marx, but also with certain figures of the French Revolution, she concludes that Bolshevism is not syndicalism. It is state socialism. It is Marxism. It is communism. In a word, it is... Babuthism. In her research, she evidently could not help but notice the similarity of these philosophies with the philosophical outline given in the protocols, and that is why she presents such information about them as she does in this chapter. Now, who is or what is Babuthism? 
Francois-Noël Babou was the son of a French army officer, a major, who, deserting the French army for the army of Austria, had later sunk into poverty. That is how young Francois grew up, the son of a basically disgraced nobleman. In 1785, Babouf was working to assist other noblemen and priests in France in the assertion of their feudal rights. But by 1789, he had an abrupt turnaround. He was demanding the abolition of feudal rights, as he had become a Jacobin and then a leading figure in the French Revolution. However, it is not clear whether the transition to the total communism which he came to profess and write so much about, even though in his day it was not yet called communism, that didn't happen for another 50 or 60 years, it is not clear as to whether that transition had come before or after he had joined the Jacobins, the society to which he had belonged and which was supposedly founded the same year, 1789, that Babouf's first political article was published. But while... While we have not fully studied the origination of Babouf's philosophy, and actually Babouf lost his head in the French Revolution later on, evidently Webster had, and she had concluded that it too originated with the secret societies. He didn't invent it himself. It was around before him, which we would nevertheless suspect. After her comparison of the similarities between Babouf and the Bolsheviks, Nesta Webster says that the Third International, which began in 1919, in its new Communist Manifesto, in fact admits its direct descent from Babouf. How are we to explain the continuity of idea, she asks, meaning between this, this French revolutionary and these Bolsheviks? Simply by the fact, she's answering her own question, simply by the fact that both systems are founded on the same doctrine, those of Illuminism, the Illuminati, and that the plan now at work in Russia has been handed down through the secret societies to the present day. That's the only way to explain the similarity through so many threads of secret societies in Europe that they were all disseminated through masonry and, and other similar organizations. The Bolshevik Revolution has, in fact, followed out the Code of Weishaupt in every point. The abolition of monarchy, the abolition of patriotism, the abolition of private property and of inheritance, the abolition of marriage and morality, and abolition of all religion. Now here we have to check Mr. Webster, because Webster seems to be ignorant to the fact, and she's writing this in 1921, so Europeans didn't 
even then, really have a clue as to everything that was going on in Bolshevik Russia. But Webster seems to be ignorant to the fact, and it is a fact, that the Bolsheviks remained friendly to one religion, Judaism, and they allowed the synagogues of the Jews to remain open throughout the entire history of the Soviet system, while the Christian churches were, were being used for theaters and warehouses, and probably things worse than that. However, Webster was certainly not oblivious to the role of the Jews. And further along in chapter 10, she says this, and we're going to quote it Lane, so I need a drink. But now we come to the further question. Who are the modern Illuminati, the authors of the plot? What is their ultimate object in wishing to destroy civilization? What do they hope to gain by it? It is this apparent absence of motive, this seemingly aimless campaign of destruction carried on by the Bolsheviks of Russia that has led many people to believe in a theory of a Jewish conspiracy to destroy Christianity. And indeed, if one examines the present regime of Russia, apart from the revolutionary movement of the last 140 years, and we're going to dismantle that later, this provides a very conclusive solution to the problem. To the unprejudiced observer, Bolshevism in Russia may well appear to be a wholly Jewish movement. For many years before the present revolution, the Jews had played a leading part in the forces of disruption in that country. The correspondent of the Times of Odessa in 1905 described the riots that took place there at the end of October when excited Jewish factory girls donned red blouses and ribbons and openly flaunted them in the faces of the Cossacks. Out of a population of 430,000 inhabitants, over one-third were Jews, and about 15,000 took part in the rioting. The main part of these demonstrators were students and Jews. Sounds like the 60s, right? Excited Jews unblushingly exhibited Republican emblems. Red flags were unfurled. The Russian national flag was dishonored by having all color except the strip of red torn from it. The emperor's portrait was mutilated. In the fight that ensued, over 400 Jews and 500 Christians were killed. The writer of this article further showed the demonstration to have been organized at headquarters amongst other socialistic fraternities. The Central Jewish Organization, located in Switzerland, sent emissaries from its branches in Warsaw and Poland to Odessa. And she, she's quoting the Odessa Times through November 22, 1905, in an article entitled, The Reign of Terror at Odessa. And she says that in that same paper, in November 25th, a chief rabbi named Gaster wrote a letter to contradict the article, but brought forward no proofs 
to support his contradiction. She goes on to say that Mr. Wickham Steed, in his book, The Habsburg Monarchy, quotes a letter written in the same year of 1905 by a semi-Jew, I guess he's a Michelin, on the question of the Jews in Hungary, in which this remarkable passage occurs. There is a Jewish question, and this terrible race means not only to master one of the grandest warrior nations in the world, but it means, and is consciously striving, to enter the list against the other great race of the North, the Russians, the only one that has hitherto stood between it and its goal of world power. Am I wrong? Tell me, for already... England and France are, if not actually dominated by Jews, very nearly so, while the United States, now this is Wickham Steed in 1914, while the United States, by the hands of those whose grip they are ignorant of, are slowly but surely yielding to that international and insidious hegemony. Remember that I am half a Jew by blood, but that in all I have power to be, I am not. And she's quoting the Habsburg Monarchy, page 169. In Austro-Hungary, the author observes, on page 155, the spread of socialism has been largely the result of Jewish propaganda. Dr. Victor Adler the founder and leader of the Austrian party is a Jew, as are many of his followers. In Hungary, the party was also founded and inspired by the Jews. Now, Nesta Webster doesn't mean to tell us that Wickham Steed is a Jew. She had said that he is quoting an unnamed Jew. Twelve years later, Mr. Webster says, twelve years later, this prophecy was terribly fulfilled. For whatever the Jewish press may say to the contrary, the preponderance of Jews amongst the Bolsheviks of both Hungary and Russia had been too evident to need further proof. The executive of the communist government established Hungary in March 1919 established in Hungary, consisted in a directorate of five, which included four Jews, Bela Kun, Bela Vago, Sigmund Kunti, and Joseph Pogani. The secretary was another Jew, Alpari. Shamuli, also a Jew, was the head of the terrorist troops. And she refers us to a pamphlet entitled, In the Grip of Terror, Written by Jordan Gaskell. And she says that in Russia, Jews have again predominated. An article in the Times for March 29, 1919, stated that of the 20 or 30 commissaries or leaders who provide the central machinery of the Bolshevist movement, not less than 75% are Jews. If Lenin is the brains of the movement, and they don't yet know that Lenin really was a Jew, this is generally not known in 1921. 
If Lenin is the brains of the movement, the Jews provide the executive officers. Of the leading commissaries, Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Steklov, Sverdlov, Yuritsky, Jaffa, Rakovsky, Radek, Menjinsky, Larin, Bronsky, Zalkin, Volodarsky, Petrov, Litvinov, who was a prominent member of the Jewish Fund in 1907, and later the Bolshevik ambassador to England. Smirnovich and Varowski are all of the Jewish race, while among the minor Soviet officials, the number is legion. And she refers us to the booklet, Who Rules Russia?, published by the Association Unity of Russia in New York, with the exact names and the number of Jews in the different departments of the present Russian government are given. We have similar books available at the Mein Kampf Project. I don't know if we have that one. In fact, she says, the Jewish press has on occasions admitted this influence in Bolshevism, thus in The Communist, a newspaper published in Kharkov for April 12, 1919. We find Mr. M. Cohen boasting that, without exaggeration, it may be said that the great Russian social revolution was indeed accomplished by the hands of the Jews. It is true that there are no Jews in the ranks of the Red Army as far as privates are concerned, but in the committees and in Soviet organizations, as commissars, the Jews are gallantly leading the masses of the Russian proletariat to victory. The symbol of Jewry, which for centuries has struggled against capitalism, has become also the symbol of the Russian proletariat, which can be seen even in the face of the adoption of the red five-pointed star, which in former times, as it is well known, was the symbol of Zionism and Jewry. She said that that was quoted in Nihilus's American edition of the Protocols on page 88. And she concludes that this star from the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution has decorated the caps of Lenin's guards. Webster goes on to describe the Bolshevik activities among certain Jews in England, certain of the lower classes of Jews. But she seems to ignore the statement that she quotes from Wickhamsteed above, where he admits in the Habsburg monarchy, for already England and France are, if not actually dominated by Jews, very nearly so, while the United States, by the hands of those whose grip they are ignorant of, are slowly but surely yielding to that international and insidious hegemony. Wickham Steed certainly seemed to have his act together. He certainly seemed to have quickly noticed the Jewish grip on the West as the third edition of that book was published in London in 1914. Then Mr. Webster continues, in the face of all this overwhelming evidence on the role of the Jews in the revolutionary movement, what wonder that the amazing protocols of the elders of Zion 
first published in Russia by Sergei Nihilus in 1902. And then she says in parentheses that the copy in the British Museum is dated 1905, but there is said to have been an earlier edition in 1902. And in English, under the title of the Jewish Peril in 1920, came as a revelation and appeared to provide the clue to the otherwise insoluble problem of Bolshevism. Here was the whole explanation, a conspiracy of the Jewish race that began perhaps at Golgotha, a reference to the crucifixion, that hid itself behind the ritual of Freemasonry that provided the driving force behind the succeeding revolutionary upheavals that inspired the somber hatred of Marx, the malignant fury of Trotsky, and all this with the fixed and unalterable purpose of destroying that Christianity which is so hateful to it. Is this theory true? Possibly. But in the opinion of the present writer, it has not been proved. It does not provide the whole key to the mystery. And in a lot of ways, she stays in denial. But that's okay. We're going to proceed with her book until we're past our portion on the protocols. We think she should have read the Talmud. But that, too, is an investigation for another time. The following table is from the same book, Nestor Webster's World Revolution, Chapter 10. And in the copy of the PDF that we're going to post online with this podcast, it will be on pages 298 through 305. And here in this first part of her comparison, because she's comparing the protocols to collections of several other writings, here in this first part, she is comparing it to the Illuminism, the writings of Adam Weishaupt, between 1776 and 1786. He who wants to rule, it says in the protocols, must have recourse to cunning and hypocrisy. We must not stop short before bribery, deceit, and treachery if these are to serve the achievement of our cause. And she cites a similar line in Weishaupt's writings. Apply yourselves to the art of counterfeit, to hiding and masking yourselves in observing others. Now, we must bear in mind that she's pointing out similar philosophies as well as similar phrases. It's the underlying philosophy of what it says in the protocols that betrays the similarities with many of these writings of the secret societies, even if those philosophies aren't expressed in the same terms. Quite often they are. And we see in the protocols, the end justifies the means. In making our plans, we must pay attention, not so much to what is good and moral, as to what is necessary and profitable. 
and likewise in the writings of Weishaupt. The end sanctifies the means. The good of the order justifies calumnies, poisonings, murders, perjuries, treasons, rebellions. Briefly, all that the prejudices of men call crimes. And she's citing this through Ave Barul, who quoted the evidence of several of those professors who later turned on Adam Weishaupt. From the protocols, with the press, we will deal in the following manner. We will harness it and will guide it with firm reins. We will also have to gain control of all other publishing firms. All news is received by a few agencies in which it is centralized from all parts of the world. When we attain power, these agencies will belong to us entirely and will only publish such news as we allow. No one desirous of attacking, of attacking us with his pen would find a publisher. And we know from experience that that is true today. We should um, also understand that this is true today to a great extent. Of course, we understand that only... Um, that 95% of the media is owned by only a few companies and that Jews are at the heads of all of those companies. But this was the case now for 100 years. For instance, during the um, Second World War, there was hardly any news of what was going on in Europe through the entire period of the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, that did not come through Reuters. If it didn't come through Reuters, a Jewish news organization, which was based in England, then we didn't hear it. So all of our news concerning Adolf Hitler, National Socialist Germany, it all came through the same Jewish news organization. Today we see local papers, local news outlets don't pick up any national story unless it's syndicated from AP, UPI, Reuters, Bloomberg, one of a handful of Jewish-controlled companies. From Adam Weishaupt, similarly, we must take care that our writers be well-puffed, meaning well-promoted, and that the reviewers do not depreciate them. Therefore, we must endeavor by every means to gain over the reviewers and journalists, and we must also try to gain the booksellers, who in time will see it is their interest to side with us. If a writer publishes anything that attracts notice and is itself in itself just but does not accord with our plan, we must endeavor to win him over and decry him from the protocols, our program will induce a third part of the populace to watch the remainder from a pure sense of duty and from the principle of voluntary government service, like those IRS snitch programs, right? Then it will not be considered dishonorable to be a spy. On the contrary, it will be regarded as praiseworthy, and the Bolsheviks employed those spies all over Russia during their revolution. From Weishaupt, every person shall be made a spy on another and on all around him.
sounds like George Orwell. Well, these Jews were writing about it 200 years ago. We will transform the universities from the protocols and reconstruct them according to our own plans. The heads of the universities and their professors will be specially prepared by means of elaborate secret programs of action. They will be carefully nominated. And from Weishaupt, we must acquire the direction of education, of church management, and of the professorial chair, and of the pulpit. From the protocols, we intend to appear that though we were the liberators of the laboring man, we shall suggest to him to join the ranks of our armies of socialists, anarchists, and communists. The later we always patronize, pretending to help them out of fraternal principle and the general interest of the humanity evoked by our socialistic masonry. And from Weishaupt, we must preach the warmest concern for humanity and make people indifferent to all other relations. We must win the common people in every corner. And that's exactly the tactic that they still use in the news media, playing on people's emotions to save the whales, save the niggers, save the Chinese, save the tree frogs. From the protocols, in the so-considered leading countries, we have circulated an insane, dirty, and disgusting literature. And from Weishaupt, we must try to obtain an influence in the printing houses, bookseller shops, painting and engraving are highly worth our care. They were strongly suspected of having published some scandalous caricatures and some very immoral prints. And they scrupled at no means, however base, for corrupting the nation. And that's actually a court of Robeson and not of Weishaupt, who is describing Weishaupt and his, his aspirations. From the protocols, our sovereign must be irreproachable. And from Weishaupt, an illuminated regent, one of the ranks of the Illuminati, shall be one of the most perfect of men. He shall be prudent, foreseeing, astute, irreproachable. From the protocols, in the place of existing governments, we will place a monster, which will be called the administration of the super-government. <laughs> they use language that's almost that bad. Its hands will be outstretched like far-reaching pincers, and it will have such an organization at its disposal that it will not possibly be able to fail in subduing all countries. Another reference is mentioned later in the protocols of the international supergovernment. And from Weishaupt, it is necessary to establish a universal regime of domination, a form of government that will spread out over the whole world. Very similar language and the same objectives. Nesta Webster proceeds on page 300 of her book, by comparing some of the language of the protocols to the writings of the Italian secret society, the Pont Ventromaine, which had endured 
until 1848. From the Protocols, we will destroy the family life of the Gentiles. We will also distract them by various kinds of amusement, games, pastimes, passions, public houses, and, and we see this in our <coughs> casinos. That's what's meant by public houses, casinos, and vaudeville, and burlesque, and, and the amusements, and the games, and the pastimes. And, and well, in, in the later half of the 19th century, we had the idea of organized sports published, pushed, pushed in the newspaper media constantly. And, and America did, and Europe did become distracted with these same things from that time. <coughs> Excuse me. And from the hot vent Romaine, the essential thing is to isolate a man from his family to make him lose his morals. How better to do that with a whole squad full of blonde cheerleaders and a team full of niggers running the ball around the field. He loves the long conversations of the cafes and the idleness of shows. After having shown him how painful are his duties, you will excite him with the idea of another existence. And that comes from Piccolo Tigre, who was a major figure in the hot event domain in Italy. And that idea of another existence is what most American men who are caught up in, in all of these, these sports fantasies, that's what they're living. From the protocols, the people of the Christians, bewildered by alcohol, their youths turned crazy by classics. At that time, by the reference to the classics, and we saw this when we discussed the life and, and, and death. Martin Luther in life, life and Death, we haven't gotten up to the death part yet. In Life and Death here, at great length, we saw this with the, the, the pagans of the academies and universities of Europe in Martin Luther's time who were caught up in the classics such as Ovid and Marshall and Juvenal and all of these pornographic Greek and Russian poets. And that's exactly what happened. Those men were lascivious. Some of them died of syphilis and, and horrible diseases like that. We've discussed them at length. And, and here we see it 200 and some odd years later in the Protocols of Zeon. But this is a, a, um, a long-running plot against Christian civilization in Europe is to take everything ancient and, and, and pornographic and pagan and, and promote it in our society. That was how they turned men's minds in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Today, it's a little different because they have television. So they take these pagan ideals and this lasciviousness and, and they, fill up the, the, they fill up the television, the internet, with, with all of the same thing. It's just a lot more sophisticated today. And from, well, let me finish that line from the protocols. The people of the Christians, bewildered by alcohol, 
their youths turned crazy by classics and early debauchery, to which they had been instigated by our agents, by our women in places of amusement, to later I add the so-called society women or whores, their voluntary followers in corruption and luxury, and then from the writings of the hot vent romaine, let us never cease to corrupt, but let us popularize vice amongst the multitude. Let us cause them to draw it in by their five senses, to drink it in, to be saturated with it. It is corruption and mass that we have undertaken. And that's the same Jewish promotion of pornography and everything vile that's natural to their being from the protocols. The Masonic Lodge throughout the world unconsciously acts as a mask for our purpose. And then from the Hot Vent Romain, from Piccolo Tigre, it is upon the lodges that we count to double our ranks. They form, without knowing it, our preparatory novitiate. And then from the protocols, most people who enter secret societies are adventurers who want to somehow make their way in life and who are not seriously minded. With such people, it will be easy for us to pursue our object and we will make them set our machinery in motion. And then likewise from Piccolo Tigre and the hot vent Romaine, this vanity of the citizen or of the bourgeois for being enrolled in Freemasonry is something so banal and so universal that I am always full of admiration for human stupidity. The lodges launch amidst their feastings, thundering anathemas against intolerance and persecution. This is positively more than we need, we need to make adepts. The, the, the stupid masses doing the will of the corruptors of society. Today we call them liberals, we call them greenies, we call them antifa. From the protocols, we employ in our service people of all opinions and parties, men desiring to reestablish monarchies, socialists, etc. From Piccolo Tigre and the Hot Vent Romaine, princes of a sovereign house and those who have not the legitimate hope of being kings by the grace of God all wish to be kings by the grace of a revolution. The Duke of Orleans is a Freemason, a prince who has not a kingdom to expect is a good fortune for us. If you don't expect to inherit the kingdom that you're a prince within, you would be all the easier a tool to overthrow it. From the protocols, we have taken great care to discredit the clergy of the Gentiles in the eyes of the people, and thus have succeeded in injuring their mission which could have been very much in our way. The influence of the clergy on the people is diminishing daily. Today, freedom of religion prevails everywhere. 
But the time is only a few years off when Christianity will fall to pieces altogether. <laughs> and from the writings of the hot vent Romaine, there is a certain portion of the clergy that nibbles at the bait of our doctrines with a marvelous vivacity. And we will mention this again this evening, but in Martin Luther's day, the most prominent humanists were among the Catholic priests and the monks. It goes on to say, it is corruption and mass that we have undertaken, the corruption of the people by the clergy, and the corruption of the clergy by themselves, the corruption that ought to enable us one day to put the church in her tomb. They're seeking the destruction of Christianity, which they saw in the organized churches. From the Protocols we must extract the very conception of God from the minds of Christians. We must destroy all professions of faith. And then, from the writings of the hot vent Romain, our final end is the destruction forever of Catholicism and even of the Christian idea. In order to kill the old world, surely we have held that we must stifle the Catholic and Christian germ. And they're still trying to this day because they know that Christianity is true Christianity, not this Judeo-Christianity. The Jews own the churches today, but they know that true Christianity is the only defense against the Jews. Nesta Webster will now compare various statements and sentiments expressed in the protocols to the aims of the Alliance Social Democratique, which was Bakunin's, Mikhail Bakunin's secret society from 1864 to 1869, and most of this is taken directly from Bakunin's letters from the protocols. We, persu we persuaded the Gentiles that liberalism would bring them to a kingdom of reason. We injected the poison of liberalism into the organism of the state. We preach liberalism to the Gentiles. Liberalism, even American liberal liberalism, gave the, pros the posterity of the founders, no defense. It gave the Jews all the tools they needed to pull the country out from under the white man's feet. From Bakunin, the fourth category of people to be employed, thus described by Bakunin, various ambitious men in the service of the state and liberals of different shades. With them, one can conspire according to their own program, pretending to follow them blindly. And from the protocols, we will entrust these important posts, government posts, 
to people whose record and characters are so bad. Sounds like all of our modern politicians, right? Because they're following the same plan today. People whose record and characters are so bad as to form a gulf between the nation and themselves. And to such people who, in case they disobey our orders, may expect judgment and imprisonment. Can you say Jim Trafficking, Richard Nixon? And all this is with the object that they should defend our interests until the last breath has passed out of their bodies. And then from Bakunin, the third category of Bakunin, thus described, a great number of highly placed animals who can be exploited in all possible ways. We must circumvent them, outwit them, and by getting hold of their dirty secrets, make them our slaves. By this means, their power, their connections, their influence, and their riches will become an inexhaustible treasure and a precious help in in various enterprises. Every time a politician gets, quote-unquote, caught doing something, it's simply because, in some way, he disobeyed his masters. From the protocols, we will prearrange for the election of presidents whose past record is marked with some Panama scandal or other shady hidden transaction. And then from the writings of Bakunin, in the same way with the fourth category, we must take them in our bands, get hold of their secrets, compromise them completely in such a way that retreat will be impossible to them. Once you sell out, you can't go back. Wikipedia says that the Panama scandals were um, corruption affairs that broke out in the French Third Republic in 1892 linked to the building of the Panama Canal. And the United States decided a decade later to obtain the land and build the canal that now exists under equally shady circumstances. But Panama scandal is a reference to scandals concerning the French attempt to build the canal, and bribes were taken, and the Panama Canal Company ran into financial troubles, so France had failed in their endeavor. The Americans stole the Panama Canal zone from the Colombians and, and, and built the canal under Teddy Roosevelt. From the protocols, out of governments, we made arenas on which party wars are fought out. Insuppressible babblers transformed parliamentary and administrative meetings into debate meetings. Audacious journalists and impudent pamphleteers are continually attacking the administrative powers. And then from Bakunin. The fifth category of Bakunin consists of doctrinaires, conspirators, revolutionaries, all those who babble at meetings and on paper. We must push them 
and draw them on unceasingly into practical and perilous manifestations which will have the result of making the majority of them disappear whilst making a few amongst them real revolutionaries. In other words, parliamentarianism, liberalism was a step in the plan of the secret societies to totally destroy our governments and our societies. from the protocols. We will create a universal economical crisis. Simultaneously, we will throw onto the streets huge crowds of workmen throughout Europe. These masses will then gladly throw themselves upon and shed the blood of those whom, in their ignorance, they have been jealous of from childhood and whose belongings they will then be able to plunder. And from Bakunin, the association will employ all its means and all its power to increase and augment evils and misfortunes, which must at last wear out the patience of the people and excite them to an insurrection en masse. And Webster notes that Marx was evidently in on this secret. In Reflections sur la, Reflexion sur la Violence, Georges Sorrel says that Marx thought the great catastrophe would be preceded by an enormous economic crisis. From the protocols, we will make merciless use of executions with regard to all who may take up arms against the establishment of our power. We must take no account of the numerous victims who will have to be sacrificed in order to obtain future prosperity. And then from Bakunin, in the first place must be destroyed the men who are most pernicious to revolutionary organization and whose violence and sudden death may most frighten the government. And we have many assassinations of our presidents and other figures. This um, plot in the protocols to have revolution follow economic crisis is what we saw in America in the 1920s and 30s. The election of Franklin Roosevelt to four consecutive terms, basically a Jew from New York who promised people recovery from an economic crisis, a recovery that never happened. It was the war that fixed the economy because the Jews, the same Jews, wanted America in the war. That was the equivalent of a revolution. It was a silent, shotless revolution. They didn't, because the people voted Franklin Roosevelt in, they didn't need a violent revolution. When they got Roosevelt in, they basically took over the country. They completed, in 1933, what they had begun in 1913. And there were scandals with the presidents in between that were caused by those same people trying to upset it sooner. From the protocols, the Masonic Lodge throughout the world unconsciously acts as a mask for our purpose. And from Bakunin, 
My friends, abandon that absurd idea that I had been won over to Freemasonry. But perhaps Freemasonry would serve as a mask or as a passport. And Webster concludes, through all these parallels, the plan of world revolution runs like a complice with the, or a tracing plot. And when we further compare them with the utterances of the modern Bolsheviks, we can see the plan carried right up to the present moment. Let us now consider how the protocols of the elders of Zion tally with the Bolshevist program. Her quotes and her citations are more complete than I have been indicating, and of course will be in the program notes from the protocols. It is expedient for the welfare of the country, that the government of the same should be in hands of one responsible person. The system of government must be the work of one head. And the words of Lenin, how can we secure strict unity of will by subjecting the will of thousands to the will of one, meaning the government? From the protocols, the despotism of capital, which is entirely in our hands, will hold out to the state a straw to which the state will be unavoidably compelled to cling. On the ruins of natural and hereditary aristocracy, we built an aristocracy of our own on a plutocratic basis. We established this new aristocracy on wealth of which we had control. And then from Lenin, what is the first stage? It is the transfer of power to the capitalist class. Up to the March Revolution of 1917, power in Russia was in the hands of one ancient class, the feudalist aristocracy aristocratic landowning class, headed by Nicholas Romanov. After that revolution, power has been in the hands of a different new class, namely the capitalist class, the bourgeois, and then Lenin would transfer that power again to the communists. From the protocols, soon we will start organizing great monopolies, reservoirs of colossal wealth, and then, from Lenin, we must improve and regulate the state monopolies, which we have already established and thereby prepare for state monopolization of the foreign trade. From the protocols, our government is in so exceedingly strong a position in the sight of the law that we may almost describe it by the powerful expression of dictatorship. And from Lenin, we advocate a merciless dictatorship. And from the protocols, when we accomplish our coup d'etat, we will say to the people, everything has been going very badly. All of you have suffered. Now we are destroying the cause of your sufferings. That is to say, nationalities, frontiers, 
and national currencies. Certainly you will be free to condemn us, but can your judgment be fair if you pronounce it before you have had experience of what we can do for your good? And then from Lenin, we must study the peculiarities of the highly difficult and new road to socialism without concealing our mistakes and weaknesses. We must try to overcome our deficiencies in time. What we have already decreed is yet far from adequate realization, and the main problem of today consists precisely in concentrating all efforts upon the actual, practical realization of the reforms which have already become law, but have not yet become a reality. In other words, the protocols and in the writings of Lenin in the face of post-revolution suffering, you will keep promising people that as soon as your policies take effect, things will get better, and it never happens. In the protocols, our laws will be short, clear, and concise, requiring no interpretation, so that everybody will be able to know them inside out. The main feature in them will be the obedience required towards authority, and this respect for authority will be carried to a very high pitch. And then in Lenin, economic improvement depends on higher discipline of the toilers to learn how to work. This problem the Soviet authority should present to the people in all its comprehensive, comprehensiveness higher discipline, the discipline and the authority of the government and the discipline that the people require to be obedient to it being the themes on both sides. From the protocols, then all kinds of abuse will cease because everybody will be responsible before the one supreme power, namely that of the sovereign. And then from Lenin, the revolution demands the absolute submission of the masses to the single will of those who direct the labor process. And from the protocols, we will make it clear to everyone that freedom does not consist in dissoluteness or in the right of doing whatever people please. We will teach the world that true freedom consists only in the inviolability of a man's person and of his property, who honestly adheres to all the laws of social life. And then from Lenin, it must take some time before the ordinary representative of the masses will not only see, but come to feel that he must not just simply seize, grab, and snatch, and that leads to a greater disorganization. In other words, your own interests in property mean nothing unless you're totally subservient to the state. From the protocols, in order to demonstrate our enslavement of the Gentile governments in Europe, we will show our power to one of them by means of crimes of violence, that is to say, by a reign of terror. And that's how the French Revolution was executed. And then from Lenin, we will turn our hearts into steel, which we will temper in the fire of suffering and the blood of the fighters for freedom. We will make our hearts cruel, hard, and immovable, so that no mercy will enter into them, and so that they will not quiver at the sight of a sea of enemy blood. 
Webster notes that this is quoted in the American edition of the Protocols on page 89. Nine years earlier, M. Paul Copen Alvincelli, in his book, and the title's in French, but it means Jewish Conspiracy Against the Christian World, had written, France has known and she has forgotten the regime of Masonic terror, the reign of terror, which was orchestrated by the Masons. She will know, and the world will know with her, the regime of the Jewish terror. Webster proceeds with her comparison from the protocols. We must destroy all professions of faith. And from the Bolshevik Bukharin, religion must be fought, if not by violence, at all events by argument. And then from the protocols, when the time comes for us to take special police measures by putting the present Russian system of the Akrana in force. And then from the writings of Milyukov in the New Russia for February 1920, a highly organized intelligence department or rather, the, re the renewed Akrana of the old autocracy is a necessary part of this regime. Lenin was perfectly right to emphasize this before the last Soviet conference in Moscow, referring to December 1919. In conclusion to this comparison of the protocols, with the literature of the Jewish Bolsheviks and the rhetoric of the 19th century secret societies. Nesta Webster says the following on page 306 of her book. The foregoing parallels prove, therefore, a clear connection between the protocols and former secret societies working for world revolution, and also between the protocols and Bolshevism but they do not necessarily establish their authenticity, meaning the protocols, right? One possibility immediately suggests itself. Might they not be a forgery compounded by someone versed in the lore of the secret societies? Supposing Nihilus to have been a student of this subject, and also, as he was known to be, a pronounced anti-Semite, it would not have been difficult for him to reconstruct the program of world revolution from earlier models, weaving into them, at the same time, the idea of a Jewish conspiracy. Why, then? was this very obvious explanation not put forward by the Jews? Why, on the contrary, when it was suggested by the present writer in a newspaper article, did it meet merely with resentment? Here was a loophole indeed, but instead of using it, the advocates of Jewry contented themselves with angry expostulations or fell backward 
on absurd explanations as that the protocols were invented by the Russian police or by the czarist reactionaries in London or that they were copied from a notorious forgery by Gocha, and we've seen that book referred to in previous segments here. Why choose a forgery when such admirable, authentic models were at hand? Or again, the attempt was made to draw a red herring across the track by dwelling on Nihilus's personality and his own literary work which had no bearing whatever on the question. The point was to prove whether the document which he purported to have discovered was genuine or not. The truth is, then, that the protocols have never been refuted, and the futility of the so-called refutations published, as also the fact of their temporary suppression have done more to convince the public of their authenticity than all the anti-Semite writings on a subject put together. Now, we will see that this book went to press in May of 1921. It's possible that, it's more than possible that Webster, and she seems to be referring to the testimony, the claims of Rosiewill and Dushela, but she was not aware of the articles by Philip Graves until she had admitted that in her 1924 book on secret societies and subversive movements, which we quoted at length from here last week. And she continues by saying, the truth is then that, I'm sorry, the only line of defense Namely, that this document was the work of illuminized Freemasonry and not of a purely Jewish association has been rejected by the advocates of the Jews themselves. And the only conclusion that we can draw is that either the protocols are genuine and what they pretend to be, or that these advocates put forward by the Jews have some interest in concealing the activities of secret societies in the past. The question then arises, were the Jews concerned in the organization of Illuminism and its subsequent developments? At present, this is not clearly proved, and Webster will address this in a note to follow below. It is true that Cagliostro was probably a Jew, that Calmer, who partly indoctrinated Weishaupt, may have been a Jew, and Webster is oblivious to um, more recent accusations that Weishaupt was a Jew himself, that a certain Simonini wrote to Abbe Barul in 1806, declaring that the Freemasons and Illumines were founded by two Jews whose names the author has forgotten. And she's citing a book by Deschamps called The Secret Societies in the French language. That the Jewish financiers of Frankfurt may have contributed to the funds of the Illuminati or that the Duke d'Orleans 
or of the Duke de Orleans, I'm sorry, who is a Freemason. But all of this rests so far on no contemporary documentary evidence. The Illuminates referred to by Simonini may well have been the Martinists, founded, as it is known, by the Jew Pascalis, and frequently referred to under this name. We should require more than such vague assertions to refute the evidence of men who, like Barul and Robeson, devoted exhaustive study to the subject and attributed the whole plan of the Illuminati and its fulfillment in the French Revolution to German brains. And we have a theory on that, which we will get into shortly. Neither Weishaupt, Baron von Niga, nor any of the ostensible founders of Illuminism were Jews. Moreover, as we have seen, Jews were excluded from the association except by special permission. None of the leading revolutionaries of France were Jews, nor were the members of the conspiracy of Babouf. And so far this is true, but there is a reason for it, which I will give, which... I don't believe Mr. Webster really understood. And she has a note here, and she says that since these words were written, and at the moment of this book going to press, a number of Laval France has appeared with the date of March 31st to April 6th, 1921. So now we know that this book was published by May of 1921. Catherine Rodziwill's statements were made public, I believe, in February of 1921. So it's possible that Webster read them. She never mentioned Rodziwill in connection. She did just mention some of the claims that were being made by Rodziwill. But that doesn't mean that those claims weren't repeated a little earlier, um, the protocols were known in Russia, and it's evident that to me, from reading her work, that Webster must have had some familiarity with Russian, because um, and she certainly read French and German. So she may have found out some of these things before they were published in the West. She goes on to say that in this Laval France, that this um, article was published, in which it is stated that five Jews were concerned in the organization and inspiration of the Illuminati, Naphtali Hertz, Vesely, Moses Mendelssohn, and the bankers Itzig, Friedlander, and Meyer. But the contemporary authority for this statement is not given in Laval, France. Webster fails to recognize that it was only the Jews who made any permanent profit from any of these things, from any of these revolutions, and especially of the French Revolution. The answer to the ancient Latin question, qui bono, and the plan as it is outlined in the protocols itself, and its fulfillment should be convincing enough in spite of a lack of contemporary documentary evidence. 
While she is usually good with her citations, here she does not cite where Robeson or Barul had reached such conclusions. However, it is immaterial, since both of those authors' works were published, and both those authors evidently from Webster believed that it was Germans and Frenchmen beyond, behind these conspiracies. Both of those books were published before the emancipation of the Jews by Napoleon in 1806. Robeson's book was published in 1798, and Abbe Barul's book was published in 1799. We would argue that the Jews would not have taken any overt political action to any large extent before that time. They wanted their emancipation. They would not want to be caught up in the revolutions and wars over whether they were going to be emancipated because then they would be seen not as innocent bystanders, but as insurgents, and perhaps their emancipation would be resisted. Through the French Revolution, the Jews gained their emancipation by what appeared to be the agreement of the Gentiles, the liberals. Lester Webster continues... by saying that the claim of the elders of Zion, referring to what it says in the protocols, to have inspired all revolutionary, revolutionary outbreaks since 1789 is not therefore at present substantiated by history. And it is meaning that if the elders of Zion are Jews, that she cannot substantiate in history that all of those revolutions were inspired by Jews. That doesn't mean that they didn't substantiate them. And it is not until the Alta Vendita from 1820 onwards that they can be proved to have taken an active part in the movement. Well, that's important that she noted that because... The emancipation of the Jews was in 1806. So from 1820, Jews are engaging in these revolutions openly because they're emancipated. And now they can take part in politics in Europe without any risk from the powers that be and without any appearance that they're acting as insurgents. Now they're just common citizens like the rest of us. Now they have the costume on, right? Yet Monsignor Dillard, who clearly recognizes their importance as agents of this secret society, meaning the Alta Vendita, nevertheless attributes its efficient organization to Italian genius. From this day onward, their role is, however, more apparent. In Germany, before 1848, Disraeli himself, probably meaning the Jewish historian Isaac Disraeli, declared the father of Benjamin, 
declared them to be taking the lead in the revolutionary movement and with the first international they come forward into a blaze of light henceforth along the line of state socialism their influence is no longer doubtful in turn we should assert that it was simply not politically expedient and it was certainly not safe for jews to be taking an open role in the subversive societies before they had been granted their emancipation, something which Webster does not seem to have under consideration. And she says, but while the question of Jewish organization from the beginning of the World Revolution, meaning back in the 1700s before the French Revolution, remains obscure, the workings of Illuminized Freemasonry are clearly visible. It is strange that in the controversy that has raged over the protocol, so little attention has been paid to the fact that the so-called elders of Zion were admittedly Masons of the 33rd degree of the Grand Orient. Considered from this point of view, all their statements regarding the past history of the revolution are substantiated by facts. For if by we is meant illuminized Freemasons, then the assertion that it is we, as the protocol say, who were the first to cry out to the people liberty, equality, and fraternity is clearly accurate. Nothing can be truer than that since the French Revolution. The nations have been led from one disappointment to another, and that the secrets of its preparatory organization were the work of our hands, the hands of the Freemasons and Illuminati. If then the protocols are genuine, they are the revised program of Illuminized Freemasonry formulated by a Jewish lodge of the order. Well, she's debating the fact that it's Jews, and then she's admitting that it's a Jewish lodge that created the protocols. And the lodge, the Grand Orient in France, was indeed a Jewish lodge of masonry. But whilst the influence of the Jews cannot be proved throughout the early history of the society, German inspiration and organization is apparent from the very beginning. It was the German Weishaupt who founded the Illuminati with the aid of his German colleagues. It was the German Niga who effected its alliance with French Freemasonry, German emissaries who introduced it to the lodges of the Grand Orient. It was this German Illuminism that inspired the campaign of universal corruption waged by the Alta Vendita and the anarchic fury of Bakunin. And again, it was pan-Germanism, working by the methods of the Illuminati, that assured the success of Marx and Engels and secured control of all socialist organizations up to the present day. And I don't think that's very fair at all. Engels was an avowed atheist, and Marx was a Jew. He wasn't German. Both his grandfathers were rabbis. However, Webster's objectivity and her reluctance to lay it all at the door of the Jews 
even when she realizes that the Lodge of the Grand Orient was most certainly the original source of the plans laid out in the protocols and was a Jewish lodge, as she calls it, is of greater value to us today than if she had been a plain anti-Semite something she certainly cannot be accused of at this time. Instead, she supplies to us all the evidence that the Jews were indeed the catalysts of world revolution amidst a greater number of willing European dupes. And she also fully demonstrates for us that the protocols are real and reveals for us their true origin. Furthermore, all of these people she mentions that are not Jews, and even others, Mikhail Bakunin was an avowed atheist, and Akarsis Kludes, one of the German figures of the French Revolution, was an avowed atheist. The Hebertists, who came to power during the reign of terror in the French Revolution, were all avowed atheists. Robespierre was a Jacobin, and he was supposedly a deist, but his god was a pagan idol. It wasn't the real god. Baron von Niga, the partner of Adam Weishaupt. His religion is a little harder to pin down, but since he wrote things such as and this is the title of one of his books, General System for the Public, Towards the Foundation of All Knowledge of People of All Nations, Conditions, and Religions. He was hardly a Christian, and in fact, one of the stated goals of the Illuminati was to get rid of religion altogether. Laniga was a humanist, who was very sympathetic towards the Jews and others. Vaniga was a rather close associate of Adam Weishaupt and helped him organize the, the Illuminati, its structure, and its rituals. Weishaupt is said to be a Jesuit, but he was certainly not a Christian, just as in the days of Martin Luther. There were countless pagans and humanists as priests and monks. Yeah, sure, they were priests by vocation. They were monks by vocation. But they were certainly not priests and monks by profession. They were humanists and pagans. And their writings prove it beyond all doubt. Erasmus was the supreme among them. Weishaupt was a pagan humanist whose God was reason. He was not a Christian. In our ongoing discussion of Martin Luther in Life and Death, which we still plan to continue here in the future, we showed that it was the pagans and humanists among the European or the German noble and intellectual classes who were the defenders of the Jews. And that was especially apparent in the Reuschlin affair, where we had discussed at length the pagan and humanist defense of the Jewish Talmud and the Kabbalah. The situation was still the same in the 19th century.
and we see that the protocols themselves promote the same idea. The protocols openly promote the idea that the Jews should recruit all of the goyim that they can to their cause and use these, these labels and these secret societies and these lodges as a mask for what they're really doing behind the scenes. Now, today, the churches are finally all won over to the Jewish cause. But the Jews had clearly used the atheists and the pagans as their stepstool. Thank you for listening. Next Saturday, we will be in Pennsylvania, and we'll have some general discussions. We have a bunch of topics to talk about. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.